Dr. Russell Foster, our next guest, is Professor of Circadian Neuroscience at Oxford University and Head of the Nuffield Laboratory of Ophthalmology and the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute. Back in the 1990s, he discovered that the eye contains light-sensitive cells that we don't use to see with. They regulate circadian rhythms. They're the body's detection method for knowing whether it's day or night. And we hear about the importance of circadian rhythms more now. The importance of enough sleep is emphasised more and more. Blue light should be shunned in the evenings but sought in the mornings. We hear all this and the blue light at night theory is now being challenged to some extent. Maybe we've heard that too. But there is an awful lot more to know. Professor Russell Foster has written a highly acclaimed book called Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and How It Can Revolutionise Your Sleep and Health. Welcome to New Zealand. Well, good morning, Jim. It's an absolute delight to be back in New Zealand. Flying down here is enough to throw your body clock completely out, isn't <laughs> yes, it? it is. Well, absolutely. And I, I certainly am feeling at the moment, I got the direct flight from London to Perth, um, you know, got together with fr- friends in Perth, and then there was a big meeting, a big sleep meeting in Adelaide, and then the launch of a, a, a new policy document from uh, Australia about uh, sleep and sleep health and so got into Auckland I can't remember quite when then we went down south to uh, uh, Christchurch to meet my, um, my my son-in-law's parents and got back into Auckland last night so I'm not exactly sure where my body clock is and I and I and I apologize in advance <laughs> you don't take anything like melatonin for jet lag do you I don't know I mean the data that melatonin uh, is effective um, is really quite weak and, and certainly when I was flying quite frequently to Australia, I tried it for a bit and it didn't work for me. It's, it's not a sleep hormone, as so many people sort of say it is. It's a mild modulator of sleep. It can probably speed up the rate at which you can lock onto the new time zone depending on who you are and depending upon when you're seeing light. So it's probably good for augmenting the effects of light on the clock. But for me, uh, in the end, I just didn't think it was worth it. It's, it's worth bearing in mind that airline pilots and, and air crew are, are advised not to take it because, as as I've just experienced, my clock, I have no idea where it is. And if it is interacting with the clock, it might actually push it in the, in the, the wrong direction. Uh, so I think it's just easier to, to use light. We have declared war on the night you say but the night is winning that war slowly but surely yes i think there's been a greater realization of the importance of sleep and our circadian rhythms over the past few years i certainly remember in the 80s and i'm sure many of your listeners will you know people come in and say oh i've done another all-nighter and they begin to slap on the back it's almost heroic and that that sleep was some sort of um illness that needed a cure uh, and what we've discovered, I think, over the past decade or so, is the vital role of sleep in terms of memory consolidation. It's not just the laying down of facts, but it, it's, it's playing with information. We can actually come up with innovative solutions to complex problems after a night of sleep. Some very recent studies have shown that whilst we sleep, there's this, there's this sort of clearance system called the glymphatic system, which is getting rid of toxins, including a misfolded protein, beta amyloid, which, of course, is associated with the development of dementia and Alzheimer's. And, in fact, one night of no sleep has been shown. You can actually detect high levels of beta amyloid within the brain. Now, I wouldn't say that poor sleep is going to cause dementia or Alzheimer's, but 
if you're at risk, then it could be an additional risk factor. And certainly we do know that in some people, uh, poor sleep in the middle years is a risk factor for um, dementia in in later years. So it's, you know, we're now realizing that a third of our biology is so vital. The quality of our sleep essentially defines the quality of our wake and we need to take it seriously. It's funny, the questions are already pouring in and someone asks, I'm only mentioning this because I think it's in your book, uh, whether sunlight on the back of the knees helps with jet lag. <laughs> oh, that was a, that was, oh, no, there was a paper that came out suggesting that the, <laughs> that you could get sunlight on the back of the knee and it would shift the body clock. Now, this is not the case. Um, and in fact, I remember a grant we sent in and, and, and uh, to one of the research councils and uh, one of the referees' comments says, why is Foster looking for a new photoreceptor in the eye when we know that it's light on the back of the knee? <laughs> so we didn't get the grant. Um, oh, really? Re- I'm really, yeah. I'm, I'm not bitter. Many years have gone by. But, but yes, it is, it's, it's even in some textbooks. And it was um, – many groups tried to repeat the study and uh, failed completely. It looks as though it was an artifact of the study design. And it's a great example of course, of of the power of the scientific approach. Somebody comes up with sort of some data and an idea, it sort of suggests one thing and then lots of people try and replicate it and it fails. Yeah. And, and, and that's the joy, I think, of science. You know, it, it's sort of this iterative um, uh, uh, process whereby the truth ultimately emerges. The fact that society is not embracing the science of circadian rhythms represents an immense squandering of resources and a major missed opportunity to improve health at every level, unquote. The second part we can understand. What about the squandering of resources? Can you explain? Well, yes. If we think about timed drug taking, so, for example, we now know that drugs will have different effects at different times of the day. So there's some very important studies that have come out uh, showing that if you take your antihypertensives before you go to sleep, before you go to bed, um, rather than first thing in the morning, over a 10-year period, you can halve the risk of stroke. Now, why is that? Well, it's because that there's between 6 a.m. and 12 noon, there's a huge circadian-driven rise in blood pressure. And that's associated. Now, for most of us, not, not an issue. But if you're on, if you do have coronary, you know, heart problems, uh, then this this can be a, a, an important factor. So what happens is that to, in fact, that 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 six a.m. to twelve noon window is called the death zone in in in, 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 in you know some fields. And basically, if you take your tablets before you go to bed, they have a long half life, so they're hanging around, so they will blunt that sharp rise in blood pressure first thing in the morning. Now, if you take it in the morning, then of course, at the time you've taken the drug, it gets into the circulation, it has its effects. You've sort of passed that major window of vulnerability. Right. Other areas in anti-cancer, I mean, really quite extraordinary data there. So in some studies from the States in ovarian cancer, same drug, two different times, um, and uh, same concentration. And after a five-year period, uh, 45% of one group were still alive, but 10% in the other group. Yeah. So same drug, same concentration, different time, hugely different effects. Now, if you discovered a drug that would reduce your chances of death as a result of certain cancers, you know, you'd be off to Stockholm getting a Nobel Prize. But we can do it now with the knowledge that we have. The great problem, of course, is that our healthcare services are at sort of bursting, they're stretched beyond, you know, capacity. And so asking... For individualized medicine in this way is 
very problematic. Half my family are, are medics, and when I discuss it with them, they say, look, you know, we're, it's the Red Queen. We're running as fast as we possibly can to stay where we are. Yeah. Getting chemotherapy, let's say, at any time, let alone at a particular time, uh, is, is a real, real challenge. On the horizon, of course, are some uh, time delivery mechanisms whereby we can give these drugs at a particular time, possibly in the home environment, uh, as a result of timed, timed pumps and things. So I think, I think we're getting there. But, but these are really important issues. I mean, education of our night shift workers in the police, for example, yeah. and our, 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 our healthcare services, there's, there's some very important issues here. So a study... In junior doctors a few years ago from the UK showed that 57% of junior doctors had either had a crash or a near miss driving home after the night shift. Mm. You know, these are very serious issues. We've got to take time of day um, and sleep uh, and fatigue into account. Yes, you say in the book that we are not able to do what we want at whatever time we choose. Yeah. We are biologically constrained, whether we know it or not. We have to live in harmony with our body clocks, just yeah. to reiterate the overall tenor of the book. And yet so many of us don't. And I, I couldn't help wondering when reading your book, if we took all the advice in it, <laughs> started that when we were young, uh, whether our health and longevity might turn out to be quite different. I think that's true. And, and I think it's extraordinary to me that – you know, a third of our lives are asleep and, and so much of our biology is being regulated by a clock. We have no, at least in the UK, formal instruction on sleep and circadian rhythms for our young people. Mm. You know, we, we, we've, and we've developed resources actually with teachers to try and deliver this information. And we did a pilot study which showed that um, before we looked at the, the group and, and, and we assessed how many of those young people were having insomnia. And then after education alone delivered by the teachers – um, we were able to significantly reduce the levels of insomnia. So I think this, is, this knowledge is hugely powerful. And we know, for example, that, that good sleep gives rise to better exam results. It gives rise to less irritability, uh, less, less sort of impulsivity, doing stupid and unreflective things. And our young people need to know about the importance of sleep, um, not just when they're young and for exam success, but also as they go into the community and into the workforce. Gee, so many questions coming in. And how long are you, are you in New Zealand for? Because <laughs> <laughs> we've only got 20 minutes this morning. I think we've got two hours' worth of questions. So the body clock influences sleep, childbirth most common in the small hours, suicide yeah. most common in the late afternoon and evening, road accidents, exam results, drug and vaccine e efficacy, which you've referred to, stroke risk, mental health, obesity, itchiness. Itchiness worse in, worse in the evening. Actually, why are we itchier at night? Uh, it's, it's to do with um, blood flow. Um, and permeability of the skin. So, for example, we tend to lose moisture um, in the evening, um, and that loss of moisture uh, leads to sort of um, uh, irritability and, um, and, and itchiness, which can be made worse, of course, because we then scratch our skin if we've got a skin condition. And actually what's so fascinating is that part of the immune response actually dips down at night. So by scratching at night, um, you know, we're actually allowing bacteria, for example, through this, um, this barrier. Uh, and so, yes, I think the immune system, I mean, we've, we're learning so much about the fact that it's turned up during the day when <clears throat> we're much more likely to encounter pathogens because we're moving around an, an environment where we're going to meet other people and, and where there's sort of bugs are lurking. 
And in fact, that relates to some fascinating findings about vaccination. So vaccination is more effective uh, during the day than late afternoon, early evening. And wonderful study uh, in individuals about 70 years of age with a with a flu vaccine showing that there was a threefold greater antibody response uh, when the vaccine was given in the morning than in late afternoon. So in everything, I mean, if you think about it, our biology, or, you know, to make our biology work, we've got to do the right stuff at the right time. We've got to get our organs ready um, and, and, and we've got to get them ready in time and space. And it's the circadian system that gives this, this temporal structure to our entire world. I was reading if you're having cardiovascular surgery. This was in your book, wasn't it? Um, be a nice idea to have the operation in the afternoon. Yeah, there are some data suggesting that, certainly. Yeah. yeah. There are chemicals called <laughs> clock proteins. Oh, yes. Which only last one day. Well, So one of the extraordinary successes, I think, in biology, neuroscience generally, has been how does the clock tick? Mm. And and so what's been discovered is that there are a bunch of clock genes and they're turned on. They produce their clock proteins. And those proteins then go into the nucleus, turn off their genes. Those proteins are then degraded and then the genes can make more protein. So you have this sort of cycle, this 24-hour cycle of protein production and then degradation. Um, And that's at the heart. Now, that's in essentially every cell in the body, and that's just completely awesome. You have a master clock in the brain, but it's then coordinating billions and billions of individual cellular clocks scattered through the organ systems of the body, which ultimately deliver our rhythmic behavior. And subtle changes in some of those clock genes and their proteins have been associated with morningness and eveningness. So in a sense, by their contribution to our genes, our parents are still telling us what time to get up and go to bed. (laughs) If we live till 90, 32 years will have been spent asleep. And it sounds like a lot of missed opportunities, doesn't it, for doing and learning. And so the question here, why have well-known people like Margaret Thatcher and Lady Gaga and Barack Obama and Thomas Edison Mm. uh, not needed so much? And and Mm. do they pay a penalty a health penalty that we don't know about because they don't seem to. Yes. I mean, I, in the book, I compare the sleeping habits of Einstein, who liked to get nine and sometimes ten hours of sleep a night, and then Salvador Dali, who deliberately um, deprived himself from sleep to, to put his brain into a completely um, uh, weird state so he could do his sort of extraordinary pictures. Mm. Uh, most of us sit somewhere in between the spectrum of, of, of Einstein and Dali. Um, But I think the first point to make is that our sleep needs vary enormously, individually enormously. So, so, you know, there's the mantra about eight hours of sleep. And I remember somebody coming up to me um, pre-COVID and saying, I don't get eight hours of sleep. Am I going to die? And I said, well, yeah, you're going to die, but it may have nothing to do with your, <laughs> your eight hours. And, and the healthy range is between around about six. Some people need 10 and maybe even 10 and a half hours. Oh, really? And I think the key thing, really key thing, and, and what I'm trying to sort of <clears throat> get across in the book is that we individually need to understand how much sleep we need. So... Do you feel that you can function optimally during the day? Are you, are you feeling as though you can function? Do you oversleep extensively on, on free days, you know, like at the weekend? That's telling you you're not getting enough sleep during the week. If you're dependent upon an alarm clock to get you out of bed, if it takes a long time to sleep, to, to wake up from sleep, if you're feeling groggy, um, if you feel irritable and fatigued, um, <clears throat> 
if you crave a nap during the day, uh, if you find yourself doing stupid and unreflective things, impulsive behaviours. Um, and I think we need to listen to our friends, family and colleagues, you know, saying you seem to be a bit more impulsive, a bit more irritable. Um, you don't seem to have the empathy that you had. These are all signs that we're not getting the sleep that we need. And then, of course, the book discusses masses and masses of, of things that we can do. I think so many people feel that sleep is what you get, but it isn't. It's a highly dynamic behaviour that we will have some control over. Now, getting back to your question, um, Margaret Thatcher, yeah, um, and, I, and I spoke to one of her aides several years ago, and, and it's true that, that she was sleeping v you know, very little. Um, are there downsides? Well, I think in terms one, of one's behaviour, um, loss of empathy, frustration, um, a, a sort of sometimes a negative view, irritability. So those behaviours were characteristic, I think, of, of the Prime Minister during her later years in mm. office. And, you know, um, impaired decision-making. And, and, you know, it was a great shame because in the early years, I, I think that we saw um, some, some really important decision-making, which then was less in, well informed later in her in her prime ministership. Um, so I think there were problems, and they are you know they 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 accumulate over time. And of course, very sadly, um, Margaret Thatcher died with very severe dementia. Dementia. And so there are costs, um, and it's all about getting the balance right. Uh, and and of course, what we you know really need our sleep for is is processing information accurately and you know so many of us have to we're dependent upon our brains and sleep is the best cognitive enhancer that we've got so let's embrace it lifetime the new science of the body clock and how it can revolutionize your sleep and health professor russell foster is with us i know we're different larks and night owls and types in between there's a questionnaire in your book that tells you what type you are what are you oh i'm i'm very much an owl yes uh, now as we get older we tend to become more morning types but as a student i was really quite a a, a marked owl and i think still uh, i am comfortable going to bed certainly after midnight um whereas most people of my age group would be more like 10 o'clock yeah <clears throat> so what should a typical day for you look like waking eating and going to sleep well one of the great things about becoming a professor is that and running a group is you decide when the meetings will be. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's, that's terrible. But I remember as a as a young pup, you know, being you had to get into London for eight o'clock in the morning meetings when I was based at Imperial, and it was dreadful because I was sort of getting up at you know six o'clock in the morning. For me, that was that was a real really difficult as a, as, as a late type. So, um, <clears throat> I'm, I, as I say, I'm getting up early these days, but but I'm. I have a very relaxed transition. Um, I've stopped listening to the ghastly, you know, news broadcast first thing in the morning. I, I listen to classical music. I wake up, as I say, a bit earlier, go off, have a lovely coffee in the morning, check my emails, listen to all the excited chatter of the students around me, and I'm, I'm, I'm off, to, off to work. But meetings in my group tend not to start before 10 o'clock in the morning. Bravo. Now, I know we have the luxury of doing that, and I know that's not possible for everybody. Um, we do luckily uh, but but of course we work later into the uh, into the evening so the day is shifted and i work primarily with young people who have earlier body clocks than elder people so my body clock fits very nicely with their needs too 10 minutes left for us and with your permission i'll skate through a few quick questions if i may from myself and the, the um 
the ones coming in. Uh, magnesium is being mentioned a bit by listeners. Yes, that's interesting. I was slightly sceptical about the data uh, about magnesium. But I was at a meeting recently suggesting that magnesium may indeed help. I think we still have to get those randomized controlled trials. But I think there's increasing evidence that magnesium may help some individuals with their sleep. Shift work when young can predispose you to developing MS later in life. And a question to go with that. Might a heavy partying style when you're young do the same thing? Well, there are several diseases that have been associated with sleep and circadian rhythm disruption and increased vulnerability. We talked about dementia, and there are other neurodegenerative uh, conditions. I I think it would be wrong to frighten people saying, yeah, you're going to get MS. Uh, But if you're vulnerable, if there's a family history or there's other issues that make you vulnerable, then disruption in the early years may well increase your vulnerability. Yeah, partying, well, yes, um, if you're going to chronically sleep-deprive yourself um, extensively, you know, through the young years and into middle age, then it will cause problems, yes. If we shouldn't eat at night, why do they put a light (laughs) on the fridge? (laughs) Yes, I love that, I love that. I was actually asked that. Yes, exactly. I do not know, perhaps because (laughs) kitchens are not bright enough. (laughs) But but I think it's a wonderful question. Yeah, I did laugh. We may know about the importance of morning light, But I'm sure most of us do not know about dusk light, you know, roaming in the gloaming. Can you explain? Yeah. So light has different effects at different times. So morning light advances the clock, makes us get up earlier and go to bed earlier. Dusk light delays the clock, makes us go to bed later and get up later. We did a wonderful study on university students. In fact, some university students in Auckland um, and Perth and all around the world and showed that um, the later the chronotype, the more owl-like you got, they were missing the morning light, which would advance the clock, make them get up earlier. So they were sleeping through the the early hours of morning, but they were getting the dusk uh, and evening light, uh, and and, and that was shifting the clock to a later time. So the timing is really important. Now, most of us tend to have a longer body clock. So under constant conditions, we get up later and later and later. That's why morning light is so important, because it advances the clock. It, It adjusts for that body a clock that's sort of slightly longer and it shoves it a little bit earlier every day. How much morning light? I mean, if you're getting up early and going to work in winter, missing that light, you're in the office or the factory all day. What should you do? Should you nip outside at 11 o'clock? Is that too late? It's a bit bit late then. Ideally, um, get out first thing in the morning and get natural light. And of course, you know, in the UK, in in the north, in Scotland, um, you know, there's not a huge amount of light. So the recommendation is to sit in front of a light box and the light boxes can produce you know light intensities of 10,000 lux so 10,000 lux for 30 minutes in the morning is 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 great for setting the clock in places like Tromso you know in the arctic circle in the yeah, north yeah. um the f- entire families will have a light room that they'll go into first thing they'll have their breakfast in front of artificial bright lights to set their clock yeah interesting uh What's your definition of sleep, useful sleep? Because there are questions coming in about disturbed sleep during the night. So do the, when do the benefits start to accrue? Does it, it doesn't matter how much we wake up in the night if we end up with a full quota of hours. It's a complicated 
question because we don't fully understand what's going on. And, and so the, the experiments have been, up until now, fairly, fairly crude. So, you know, you can, you can monitor the different stages of sleep, so non-REM sleep, um, and you see individuals going into deep, deep sleep, and then that you bounce from non-REM sleep into REM sleep. And, and you can see this in, in your partner, um, or indeed in your dog, um, where the eyes start oscillating and they might start, start twitching. Um, and Deep slow wave sleep, so the f- and we have lots of deep slow wave sleep during the first half of the sleep episode, and that's been associated with memory consolidation and the processing uh, of information. Whereas REM sleep, you know, this rapid eye movement sleep, has been associated with emotional processing. And so we are beginning to get some understanding of what these different states are doing, but it's not absolutely clear. The very important point, though, is that it looks like the default sleep condition of humans is not a single eight-hour block. If you look at the um, pre-industrial literature, some wonderful studies, people talk about a wonderful first sleep and then a second sleep. Yeah. In societies today without electricity, you, you find this what this, this biphasic or polyphasic sleep. Um, the, the really important point is that most people who wake up in the middle of the night aren't aware that this is fine, this is normal, and then think, oh my goodness, I'm never going to get back to sleep and might as well start doing emails and drinking coffee. Um, and in fact, if you stay calm, uh, it may take you 20 minutes, 30 minutes, but you almost certainly uh, will go back to sleep again. As I say, that's the default state of humans. Lifetime. Professor Russell Foster is with us for the next few minutes. Um, mm. The link between sleep disruption and mental illness, we yes. probably won't have time to get into that, but it's quite Well, it's, it's something that where we've done a lot of work, yeah. and, and it is absolutely extraordinary. Bottom line is we're now beginning to use sleep stabilization as a new therapeutic in mental health. We took a bunch of, of, of university students, again, showing poor sleep, and they were on the spectrum, so they were showing paranoia and hallucinatory experiences. This is, this is pioneered by my, my colleague Dan Freeman in Oxford. And partial stabilization of sleep in that group led to a reduction in paranoia and hallucinatory experiences. And I think what's exciting is that psychiatry is now really taking sleep uh, seriously as, as, as an, an important therapeutic tool. The brains of flight crews on planes, I found that fascinating. Yeah, yeah. They're smaller. Well, yes, they actually sh- they, are, they are smaller. And in fact, if you look at reaction times and other cognitive tasks in long-haul versus short-haul pilots over a period of five years, you see that the long-haul show a significantly reduced uh, cognition and reaction times. Conception, trying to have mm. a baby. Is any time of day better for that? <laughs> well, it's it, yeah, the, the, there's some very interesting data suggesting that um, sp- there's, there's this morning rise in testosterone and uh, sperm motility is actually higher that first thing in the morning. And um, some couples have reported having tried for years to conceive and then they switched as it were to the morning um, and that they were then uh, had greater success. The the data I have to say are a bit weak but you know it kind of fits with the biology. (coughs) When to treat pain on your body like the pain from arthritis that is in here. Tumor development and cancer happens faster if the circadian rhythms are disrupted. That's incredibly important. I was just discussing this with some colleagues recently. Yeah it's it's now very important to stabilize sleep-wake in individuals individuals are recovering from, um, from, from cancer because uh, the outcomes are better. Immunology is hard. 
Um, so yeah. in a minute and a half, I won't get to that. Can I ask why haven't we evolved to adapt to our new environments? It just hasn't been long enough. Hasn't been long enough. I mean, if you think about it, we invaded the night from the 19th century. And actually, if you know, primarily from the 1950s, where, where electricity became cheap, universal. Um, and so we, we've run, you know, sort of headlong rush into invading the night from, from the middle of the 20th century. And it just hasn't been long enough. Men working nights are up to six times more likely to separate in the first five years of marriage. Night shift workers have significantly higher rates of many kinds of cancer. And you say, I bet that wasn't in the job description. (laughs) That's right. Now, uh, I I, I think it would be naive to say that we've got to put that 24-7 genie back in its bottle. We won't. We're always going to need frontline staff of some sort. The key thing is that there's lots of things we can do to mitigate the problems of night shift work. And what we fail to do conspicuously fail to do is to provide the education and the advice about what night shift workers can do to mitigate some of those problems. Lifetime. Professor Russell Foster has been with us. The time has absolutely flown by. The new science of the body clock and how it can revolutionise your sleep and your health. So you're in New Zealand for family reasons. You can relax and have a good time now, can you? Absolutely. Yes, I'm off off, off to lunch with um, uh, my son-in-law's sister. Yes. (laughs) Very good. Hey, thank you so much for giving us the time in your busy life and popping in to see us. Well, Jim, it's an absolute delight to, to chat and, of course, to be back in New Zealand.